turn in God's Word tonight to Deuteronomy chapter 10. As we look at the fear of God out of a love for God, you can find this teaching throughout the Scriptures, but I wanted us to consider it from Deuteronomy. We'll, look at, we'll be looking at how it's illustrated, though, in, as well in the New Testament in uh, the character of Zacchaeus tonight. But Deuteronomy chapter 10, I don't know that I like that word fear. It seems like every time I'm setting that word in front of myself, I'm trying to soften it somehow because we just don't like that word. We're not supposed to be afraid of, 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 of God, and yet there is this holy fear, and, and, and there's a command that we would fear God, that we would reverence God, that we would be uh, uh, uncomfortable in displeasing Him. And in that, uh, God reminds His people of that as they're going into the promised land here in Deuteronomy chapter 10, when He gives them a summary of how they are to, to act and how they are to uh, proceed into the land. Listen to that Word of God as it's found in Deuteronomy 10 and verses 12 and 13. Now, people of God, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. This is the word that we consider tonight, God's word. What is basic to growing as a God-fear? Well, the whole duty of man is this, to fear God and keep his commandments. But tied up in these commands is the command to love. When Jesus is asked, what is the first and great commandment, or what is the greatest commandment, he says it is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. We hear that as the summary of the the law. And the second is to love your neighbor. Fear and love are side by side in our passage. God has made covenant with his people. He's called them out amongst all the people of the, the world and established relationship with them. And they were to show the world what it is like to, to live before the Lord. And, and I sometimes wonder, what do we, what do we show the world when we're, we're living for the Lord? Are we, are we joyful? Are we filled with a, 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 an inexpressible or, or an, a, a, a love that's evident to all as we talk about the Lord? Or are we just simply saying, well, you can't do this and you can do that, and, and, and that's, that's how things work? And, and we say that's how we show that we love the Lord, by our obedience, is there, though, this, this passion, this warmth that should be, uh, uh, that's, that's clearly a part of, of God's teaching? Love is the motivator behind obedience. God does this for our good. It's that, it's that uh, fence that protects us from, from all that which is outside that would seek to attack, and obviously for us to search our own hearts. That's why the Word is given. The commandments are given, because God doesn't want us uh, to go in astray and down a path, the wide path, which leads to destruction. It's a loving thing that God does for us when He gives us His Word. What feeds obedience in the child of God? It should be a love for God. Children, as your parents say to you when you're young, and perhaps you don't remember these events, but when you're, when you're near uh, something that would be dangerous, so that would perhaps cause harm, and your parents say, don't do that. They're doing that because they love you. They want to protect you from what would harm you, maybe a hot stove or, or, or boiling water. So it is when God speaks to us, he says, I have determined 
that right path, and I want you to walk in that right way. Jerry Bridges, and he's, when, he's writing, when he was writing his book, The Joy of Fearing God, said he, he was encouraged by many people when they heard the topic, but he said there was always some, some uh, uh, imbalance around that word. There were, there were some who said, boy, if you, when you teach people to fear God, teach them to fear God, to be fearing God. And he said, I almost it was like they were to, to be afraid of God and to, to flee from him, to run from him. And that's not the, the type of fear that God wants to, to work in us. He wants us to, to have an awe for him and, and, and to glory in him out of the wonder that he has relationship with us through the Lord Jesus Christ, certainly because he has made all things, but even more to have that warmth, that love for him as he has brought us to himself. Satan wants us to flee from God. He wants us to hide from him as he knew would happen when the, our first parents disobeyed God. They, they fled from him. But the Bible speaks clearly of how, though our sin deserves judgment, God has uh, redeemed us through his Son. He wants to be reconciled to us. He wants us to draw near to him. He wants us to take his word seriously. He wants us to take his warnings of judgment seriously. But he doesn't want us to obey only out of fear of judgment. He wants you to love him. How is love for God smothered? How, is, uh, how does that happen? Well, first off, we hear the great offense of the gospel, and that is that all have sinned and are deserving of condemnation. And, and that doesn't ring well in our ears because we want to be able to, to say, no, no, I'm, I'm, I'm doing something for, for God. The, the love for, for, for me or that's seen here should flow from God to me. Look at what I'm doing. Look what I've done. I'm not like that person over there. When Jesus came to earth, he spoke as God, and he spoke of the severity of sin and the totality of sin and the holiness of the Father, and he said that there is no one who does good. And that was heard by many, one in particular, one individual in particular, Paul, heard this, and he hated Jesus because he said, I've, I've kept the commandments. I've kept the commandments and then some. I've done the, the Pharisaical commandments on top of the, 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 the Ten Commandments. Certainly, I don't, I love God. Look at my obedience. He says, but, but more so, God ought to love me because look at what I'm doing to preserve, to preserve the truth and to direct God's people. He said he used to boast in that, that he was, a, as to law-keeping, a Pharisee. Well, we can... Sometimes act that way too. We think that love flows down because of our goodness. It's seen by God, and He looks at us and He says, "Yes, though that, that I love them because they are they're, they're doing what I'm what I've commanded them to do." We tell ourselves, "I love God. Look at my obedience." And it sounds somewhat cold at times, somewhat calculating. When Jesus says, "If you love me, you will." obey my commandments. He's not teaching salvation by our obedience. He's teaching that love is behind that obedience. If you love me, if you love me, if you want to draw near to me, you will obey my commandments. Paul's focus was upon himself. If people would ask him again whether he loved the Lord, he'd say, well, look at my life. Ask your, to ask the question is to answer it. I'm, I'm 
living for the Lord. I'm righteous. Doing all that I am commanded to do, and even more so. And he thought himself quite high on, in, in God's presence as far as God esteeming him for all that he's done. Perhaps in the same story, I remember um, a Christian song some time ago, some years ago, and, and he was talking in the song about how we often think of ourselves as righteous. He, he, something about the lyrics of born on Saturday and church on Sunday, keeping all the commandments and, and, and uh, loving the Lord. And he said it, it, it was kind of like, I'm, I'm doing all these things. That proves it. That, that shows it. Now, these are good things to be in church and to be, let's say, memorizing Scripture and doing catechism lesson. In fact, we ought to be doing that. If we don't, we lose that passing on of the truth, but we're not Pointing to that and saying, well, of course I love God. Just look at what I'm doing. It's possible to do all these things and not love God. Well, look at Deuteronomy again. As the people of God prepare to go into the land, God calls them to reflect on their lives. What is required of you? You are to fear the Lord, to walk in all his ways, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord. You are to love the Lord. God doesn't say, keep my commands to get my love. He says, keep my commands from love because you love me, because you have an awe, reverence, a fear of me. What smothers love for God is a focus on self and belief that performance is the foundation for a relationship with God. I was thinking about Martin Luther this week, and I was looking up some quotes uh, as he, you remember in the time of the Reformation, he was wrestling with that whole idea of, of living before the Lord and living under a holy God. And before he discovered the grace of the gospel, he was asked uh, what he thought of Christ. And he said, Christ seems to me an angry judge with a sword in his hands. And that was because he saw that he was to keep the law, to keep the law, to keep the law, and that if he didn't do it, then Christ was there, ready to to bring the sword of judgment down upon him. He felt God was a severe taskmaster waiting to damn him to hell. And he came to confession every day, confessing all the sins he could think of. There was one instance where he was there for over six hours. And this was was regular practice for Luther. And his his father confessor said, Luther, uh, Brother Martin, please, come back when you have something uh, uh, more significant to confess. He He would confess all of the sins he could possibly think of just because he wanted to rid himself of, of that feeling of guilt and, and wanting to have a feeling of right relationship with the Lord. He said of himself, if ever a monk could have gotten to heaven by his monkery, I was that monk. But it didn't bring him peace, neither did his work bring him to love God. It was all about focus on himself. When he was asked if he loved God, he said this, Love God, sometimes I hate him. Well, now how is that when someone's so fixated on keeping God's word that he would say something like this? Well, it was because he was focused on himself and and his inability to to get to God through his work. And he saw God as simply uh, uh, not loving him if he couldn't keep the law perfectly, which, of course, he could not. All of his works were insufficient. They couldn't remove his guilt. And when he was studying Romans 1, he understood the phrase, 
the righteousness of God to be teaching that, well, the righteousness of God is what condemns sinners. And as he studied the passage, he asked God to help him understand. And then he writes this, then God had mercy on me, and I began to understand that the righteousness of God is a gift of God taken hold of by faith. I felt as though I had been reborn altogether and had entered paradise. At that moment, the whole of Scripture opened to me. My mind ran through the Scriptures, seeking analogies and other phrases. Just as intensely as I had hated the expression, the righteousness of God, I now lovingly praised this most pleasant word. This passage from Paul became to me the very gate to paradise. Love can, for God is, is smothered when we're just looking at ourselves and, and thinking, well, I've got I've to bring myself to God. But when we see that God offers us the righteousness uh, of Christ by faith, then we may draw near. Love for God is stirred when we see how he's graciously provided what he requires. The perfect righteousness by which we may enter heaven is the perfect righteousness of Christ, credited to the one who believes in him. God's love that rescues from sin and turns the sinner to him in love. I, that's when I was thinking about the story of Zacchaeus. He is probably one of the more intriguing characters in the New Testament for me. When you think about all that, that he uh, uh, stood for and all that he did and, and how he responded to Jesus. Wouldn't you, friends, young people, wouldn't you love to have a friend who's, who's eager to talk about Jesus and uh, to invite people in to, to meet Jesus. Aren't those the types of people that we should want around us? Shouldn't we be those types of people that we say, you should hear about Jesus? That should be uh, exciting to us. Think about Zacchaeus. He's a man who, who was certain he could not be saved. He was under this sense of condemnation. All of the Jewish uh, uh, People around him were, were, saw him as just as the lowest of the low. He was a tax collector. No way could he, could he ever possibly be saved. No way was there any path for him unto salvation. And he felt that weight, and he, he was burdened by it. Yet when he heard of this man, Jesus, who was speaking of how he came to save sinners, he, what did he want? He wanted to see him. Now, is that our same excitement to see Jesus? Or do we just say, yeah, yeah. When people talk to us, are we afraid to talk about Jesus, to show them Jesus? Perhaps we want to show them our works and say, well, you know, I mean, this is important. Why don't you come with me to this event or that event? And, and what we're in effect doing is saying, you've got to act like me instead of, of saying, let me introduce you to Jesus. And our love for the Lord comes out as we start talking about that. Zacchaeus felt totally unworthy to come before Jesus. He knew there was no hope for him. But you remember, children, what happened when he heard Jesus was coming that way. He looked away from himself and he said, i got to get up in a tree because I want to see Jesus. I want to see him. I've heard so much about him and I want to, I want to know more about him. And... The Bible, or Luke writes, uh, he was small of stature. He was considered as less than nobody, we could say. Yes, he was short, but, but there's something more going on there. He was, he's seen by others as just this, this wretched man beyond any hope of salvation. But he wanted to see Jesus, and he ran ahead and climbed up to see him. 
And Jesus comes by that place and he looks up to, the, to, to Zacchaeus in the tree and he says, come down quickly because I want to go to your house. I want to fellowship with you. I want to be with you. What a stunning statement. All kinds of emotions going through his head. Well, what does this mean? What could, it possibly, uh, uh, what, what could he possibly say? Uh, he doesn't say, oh, I don't, I don't know, I'm afraid. What will the, what will the, the others think? He says, he, he's, he gets home and he welcomes Jesus in. And he makes that commitment to give away what he has taken and more so. And Jesus then says, salvation has come to this house. What a, brave, what, what a contrast. Zacchaeus comes down and goes home and receives him joyfully, Luke 19.6 says. While the self-righteous religious leaders, all they can do is grumble and say about Jesus, oh, he's gone to be a guest of a sinner. Where was their focus? Their focus was on themselves. God loves me because I'm not like Zacchaeus. But Zacchaeus is so overjoyed. He gives up trusting in his money and, as I said, commits to giving it away. And Jesus says, today salvation has come to this house since he is also the son of faith, a son of faith, a son of Abraham, one who loves the Lord and says, all that I can do is fall upon the mercies of God. He has become great and I have become little. As John the Baptist would say, he must become greater and I must become less. Is that how it is in your life? Is that how it is when you're talking to other people and you say, let me introduce you to Jesus? Teachers of law thought the fear of God and regulated living was path to the path that secured life. <clears throat> Each time they were asked what they trusted in or why they believed they were going to be saved, they focused on obedience and their rabbi and their school of, of, of teachers. And they would say, well, this proves my love for the Lord. After all, if it wouldn't be for us, the Pharisees, this whole way of living would disappear. We're, we're preserving this for God and for the future. They didn't see themselves as lost and needful. It's only when we see the greatness of our sin and we realize the smallness of our stature before God and the greatness of His unconditional love for us, that we then start to see that God is greater and larger and our awe of Him grows, but our love for Him deepens. And like Zacchaeus, we gather together all who want to hear of God's love and tell them of the way of life to be found in Him. We're in awe that God would save even someone like us. Or we say it personally, I'm in awe that God would save someone like me. <clears throat> and love for God in all of His grace and mercy 
flows from the heart that understands God's great love. Worship is not gathering together to separate ourselves from the world so that we can thank God that we're not like those other people. Worship is to be focused on the glorious love of God in Christ. We see our sin, we recognize our need, and we ask God, we plead for God to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we, we hear his word of promise that we have been forgiven of all our sins for the sake of Christ. We glory in him. And we want to tell others about him because he is their only hope. Sinclair Ferguson, on the love of, that God's children would have for him, is, says this, <coughs> This fear is an indefinable mixture of reverence, fear, pleasure, joy, and awe which fills our hearts when we realize who God is and what he has done for us. There is an awe, but there's a wonder that God would call us to love him. John Newton writes in that hymn, Amazing Grace, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear. Grace opened his eyes to see that God could save him and relieved his fears of condemnation and led him to pen that wonderful hymn, Amazing Grace." And the song, my God, how wonderful thou art, thy majesty how bright, how beautiful thy mercy seat and depths of burning light, this, this glory of our God. He goes on, the, the writer goes on, oh, how I fear thee, living God, with deepest, tenderest fears, and worship thee with tri- tem- uh, trembling hope and penitential tears. And then this stanza, yet I may love thee too, O Lord, almighty as thou art, for thou hast stooped to ask of me the love of my poor heart. That's amazing. That God would ask of us to love Him. Well, how does such love arise in your heart? It is by asking God and saying, Lord, implant this truth in my heart, the reality of the situation concerning me and my, my, my uh, separation from you, an unbridgeable chasm, but also of your great love in the Lord Jesus Christ, that you would draw me near, stir me to serve you with fear and to rejoice with trembling, as the psalmist calls us to do it. Serve him with fear and rejoice with trembling. Rejoice. He can lead you to love Him for revealing His love to you. He can lead you to love Him for turning your heart to prayer. He can lead you to love Him for giving you an ear for His commands. He can lead you to love Him for giving you a delight to obey. There's a difference between bare obedience and loving obedience. One who obeys in order to make demands on God is self-focused. I've done this, now hear my prayer. Uh, after all, we have this relationship, don't we? I'm talking to you and I'm, I'm keeping these commands. Now you owe me something. And certainly we make petition in our prayers and we know that God will answer, but the prayer of the true child of God pleads the merits of the Lord Jesus Christ alone as, as the entrance before the throne of grace. The true child of God clings to the faithfulness of God, to his word, and to his mercy. 
The true child does not make demands of God, but in love for God, goes to him for there alone he knows he can receive answer for all of his needs. He kneels before the one who alone can give what is needed. Jesus says, ask, seek, and knock in prayer. And that's, yes, that's true. We, we are called to pray, but it is not because of our persistence, our personal persistence, that we are answered. This command is called to continue humbly with God, for there is nowhere else to get an answer for our need. God promises to answer all those who call upon him in truth. And that true calling is informed by a deep love for and reverence of God. You're responsible to call upon God. You're dependent upon God to answer. He doesn't owe you anything, but he reveals that he will give you everything that you need. As you look to him, as you delight in him, answering your deepest need for the sake of his son. The cross is your confidence of being heard. It is his provision. In the cross, there is justice. There is a a fear of what happens to the one who is not right with God. But there's also mercy flowing from that cross, showing that the outstretched arms of Jesus have been offered, that the Father might receive him, that you might be forgiven in him. God's provision leading to love which flows forth in grateful obedience. He's rescued you from death and loves to lead you to abundant life. Praise be to God. Amen. Father in heaven, we thank you for the teaching that is in your word concerning how we are to submit ourselves to your word and to know the way of life. It is narrow, but it is a path which you set before us And as we ask, you promise to lead. Lord, we are so unable to walk in that way of loving obedience. So often we fall into that performance mentality. Lord, help us to be transformed. Like that man Zacchaeus, who was living for self, but when he heard of Jesus, And of the truth, his heart was stirred and he wanted to see Jesus. And when he was called, he joyfully received him. And you imparted to him faith and salvation. Father, we thank you for that gift. May it lead us to love, to rejoice in you, to serve you with fear and to rejoice with trembling. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.